The Confidence, Substance, and Necessity of the Gospel Romans chapter 1, verses 11 to 32 For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood, by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, Murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Introduction The gospel message was Paul's central focus in this epistle. Right here in chapter 1, Paul presented it repeatedly, describing it in several ways. It is the gospel of God in verse 1. That is, it finds its origin in God. It is the gospel of his Son in verse 9, meaning its main subject and message is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It also is the gospel which is to be preached by implication in verse 15. 
It is a proclamation, not a mere theological point. This is the gospel of Christ in verse 16, which reminds us that the gospel finds its central meaning in the offices of prophet, priest, and king, which Christ fills as mediator. Paul presents this gospel beginning in chapter 1 upon the background of God's very being, his nature, his perfections, or his attributes. The subject of who God is makes up a very important feature for understanding the gospel. Why is the gospel what it is, is a question that is very much answered when you understand who God is. Therefore, this first chapter presents God as promise keeper, verse 2. Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3. Lover of those he calls to himself, verse 7. Director of his will, in verse 10. Powerful Savior, verse 16. Revealer of righteousness, verses 17 and 18. Eminently revealed God, verses 19 to 20. Incorruptibly glorious God, verse 23. Righteous judge of all mankind, in verse 24. The God of truth and the eternally blessed creator, verse 25. Knowing who God is greatly assists our understanding of the validity or the meaningful character of the gospel to each and every generation, our generation included. And so Paul was, according to verse 15, ready to preach the gospel. And I think originally he intended to bring out three characteristics of the gospel in this chapter. The confidence of the gospel, the substance of the gospel, and the great necessity of the gospel, which is what I will talk about today. So first, the confidence of the gospel. Our key verse is chapter 1, verse 16. But we'll back up a little as well. Paul was ready to preach the gospel, first because he desired the salvation of all people groups. He said in verses 13 to 14 that he desired to have fruit among the Romans, just as among other Gentiles. And that he was already a debtor both to Greeks and barbarians, verse 14. People very different from Jewish people. Paul was referring to the ethnic diversity you would likely experience in any of the major cities of the the Roman Empire. He had already been encouraged together by the beliefs he shared with those other Gentiles in their conversion to Christ. There was already mutual spiritual benefit he had been enjoying. This is part of his eagerness to preach the gospel in Rome. He had seen Gentiles saved through his preaching and the preaching of his companions on his missionary journeys. He learned to love Gentiles because he found that together they could enjoy God and glorify him. There was a connection in their faith that had not previously existed when either Paul was Saul and considered himself a renowned Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee, a circumcised Jew, or at least when those Gentiles were pagan idol worshippers. But in the faith of Christ, there was something all of them could enjoy together. Salvation. Salvation is something that all kinds of people can enjoy together. The gospel is the cause of this. 
Not only this, but Paul was ready to preach the gospel in Rome because he was not ashamed of it. And he was not ashamed of it because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Verse 16. Both of these things show Paul's confidence in the effectiveness of the gospel message. He had experienced its transformative ability in many people, including himself, things which only God could do. His confidence in the gospel was in its divine effectiveness. It really is the divine means of salvation. Paul had no reason to doubt any shortcoming in the gospel. He brought that up again in chapter 15. He had seen and experienced its spiritual impact upon many, Greeks and barbarians, people from opposite sides of the European continent, wise and unwise, that is, educated and uneducated, people on opposite spectrums of of intellect. He enjoyed God together with these people from all walks of life, from various social strata and ethnicities, Why? How? Because the gospel had transformed them all. It saved them. It brought them together in Christ and encouraged them all. It made them all recognize the righteousness of God, not in their works, but in Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Savior of sinners. So Paul's confidence was not in a mere possibility of the gospel's power, but in the actual powerful transformation he had seen in the salvation of individuals in the formation of international churches and the mutual spiritual enjoyment shared among otherwise polarized people groups. The gospel was Paul's confidence for the world he approached every day. And in practical application on this point, it should be affirmed that every true Christian may approach their world every day with confidence. God still powerfully saves. God still powerfully reveals his righteousness in Jesus Christ. And God still powerfully joins together unlikely and often markedly different kinds of people to be participants in worshiping, enjoying, and serving him. Together. You know, some people have seen us making friends with Africans. Maybe they think we prefer African friends. And other times people have seen us with Asian people or Amhara people. But why is this? And what is this? It is the power of God in the gospel. And though we are different from many kinds of people, we approach our world every day with a confident worldview, the confidence of the gospel. It changes all of us who believe and brings all of us near to God for the enjoyment of Him and what He gives in salvation. This is what me and my Ethiopian wife enjoy together. This is what our blended children learn of us as we train them, as we love them, and show them by example. But this is something that cannot be achieved in political parties, political leaders, ethnic rallies, or anything else that appeals only to the temporary interests of the flesh. It is the gospel that proclaims the forgiveness of sins, peace with God, 
a new heart, a blessed hope in eternal life, and an escape from everlasting punishment. That's something everyone can enjoy. That's the confidence of the gospel. That was Paul's confidence. And that's my confidence in approaching the world I live in every day. The substance of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 17 shows us the revealed righteousness of God. This is only apprehended by faith. And it is continually apprehended by faith, that is, only a life of believing apprehends and grasps this revealed righteousness of God. This is the substance of the gospel. God's righteousness. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul, as Saul, had previously found something right in his pure Jewishness, his culture, his Mosaic law keeping, his being pro-Israel, his having a good reputation as a religious person among his people and his traditionalism. Think about it. He had the same name as the first king of Israel who was from the tribe of Benjamin. Philippians chapter 3 verses 4 to 6 explains. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. We could speculate a bit about the other Gentiles. The Greeks might possibly have a great affinity for their own people. For all things Greek, Greek culture, Greek ways, basically Hellenism and its historical philosophical success, the barbarians as well might have had substantial pride concerning their culture, their achievements, or their distinctness from other peoples. The Romans surely had much which to claim as their own, their capital, the glory of the world, Rome itself, the Roman way, the Senate, democratic successes, world domination, international road construction, etc. This is a feature of fallen human nature. Whoever you are, wherever you come from, and whatever properties or qualities you may possess may seem to you the ultimate rightness that should be accepted and accommodated by all. Even false religions accommodate their constituents by promoting the ultimately acceptable self-image, like Paul's having been known for who he was. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. False religion does this for the individual. It promotes his own self-righteousness, his own performance of requirements, his own honor. It's the substance of fanatic nationalism, tribalism, regionalism, even globalism, 
communism, democracy, humanism, atheism, etc. The substance of each and every one is a man-centered substance. We get so enamored with ourselves and with our own people, our own cultures, our own political correctness, our own moral platitudes, our rightness, our self-righteousness. And over against all the competing stuff, the different self-righteousnesses of all the different nations, religions, cultures, and civilizations, stands the gospel. And its substance is divine. Its substance is God's rightness. It is God's righteousness, his achievement, his perfection, his glory, his reputation, his way, and his correction. That's what makes the gospel substantial. It is better than all the man-made, man-centered, motivational messages and missions and causes there have ever been. The most important thing, the best news, is not who's right among all of us. The good news, the best news, the most important thing is God's righteousness. That is the substance of the good news, the gospel. God is right. He has done right. This righteousness has been displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ, his son, where Jesus died to save sinners. Because in God's perspective, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Jesus died on the cross to satisfy the righteous demands of God's law against the sinner. In this, God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is as much to say that God is right, and the one who makes, whoever believes in Jesus, right with him. The righteousness of God is the substance of the gospel. The great necessity of the gospel. The focal point of this necessity is in verse 18 and the following verses. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There's really three reasons the gospel is so necessary. The first one is, as we've said before, all other claims to righteousness are really unrighteousness. We've just been talking about the glorious substance of the gospel, the righteousness of God, over against the substance of all human claims, all temporary nationalistic causes, all self-affirming religions, all cultural pride, all personal achievements, all personal moralism, etc. And whatever we could claim is right with us. The gospel stands opposite. Our self-acclaimed righteousness, whatever that may be, is not the substance of God's gospel. Ours is, according to Isaiah, filthy rags. You see, whatever Paul could have claimed as a Jew whatever the Gentiles could have claimed as their own rightness, or whatever you might claim as your own rightness, in your personal behavior, your citizenship, your nationalism, your regionalism, your ethnicity, 
your performance and what's expected of you. Whatever it is, in contrast to the true righteousness of God, it is, according to verse 18, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So whatever claims of rightness we may produce for ourselves, it is categorized by heaven as ungodliness and unrighteousness. And because the gospel reveals true righteousness, the righteousness of God, it is absolutely necessary that it be preached. The second reason the gospel is so necessary is that all other claims to righteousness are simply the suppression of the truth. The suppression of truth has deserved and does invite the wrath of God. In fact, that's what Paul said is God's very response to all forms of pseudo-righteousness. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Everything else that sets itself up as a rival to the truth of God is not only ungodliness and unrighteousness, it is also suppressing the truth of God. This human suppression of the truth of God appears in three stages. According to verse 21, a refusal to glorify God accompanied by an unthankful attitude is the first stage of the suppression of the truth of God. You see, men want glory for themselves, even though the Creator is worthy of all glory. This desire to usurp the glory of God has ironically resulted in a veiling of the human mind. This is the second stage of the suppression of the truth of God. Darkness covers humanity in the form of wisdom. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Futile thoughts, darkened hearts, and foolishness that masquerades as wisdom and is celebrated as such. The tragic thing here is that the human mind knows that God is the creator and that he is worthy of acknowledgement and glory. But man's sinful suppression of the truth sinks him not only into the rejection of the true God, but even further into a flat-out denial of the true God. The result is a variety of idolatrous worship practices. This is the third stage of the suppression of the truth of God. Man and the lower creation become the objects of affection rather than God himself. What is corruptible and changeable is worshipped instead of he who is incorruptible and unchangeable. Men worship in vain anything except the God to whom they must give an account. Why? Because to usurp the glory of God, you must reject, deny, and replace him. And that's what all men do. And that's how Paul described all men. Of the highest experiences for mankind, worship is the one worship of the one true living God is the pinnacle. But man worships in vain because he suppresses the truth of God. And this brings us to the third reason that the gospel is so greatly necessary. The wrath of God is revealed. God's wrath is incurred by these unwarranted claims 
of man to righteousness and by man's suppression of the truth of God. But what is God's wrath revealed? Most of us might think of the wrath of God as a calamity or a disaster that befalls men. Examples are the Great Flood, the Tower of Babel, the burning of Sodom and Gomorrah, or the ten plagues upon Egypt. Certainly, the wrath of God was revealed in those calamities, those disasters. Or you might think the wrath of God is something to be expected on the great day of judgment before the great white throne of God, as in Revelation 20. And certainly, the the wrath of God will be revealed as men are cast into the lake of fire, which burns forever for their sins. But in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed distinctly and twofold. First, it is God's giving men up to their own sins. They are given up to uncleanness, the lust of their hearts, and the dishonor of their bodies. Verse 24. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Why do they do such things? It is because they had already, according to verse 25, exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. They had it twisted already. So they were given up to vile passions. Homosexuality is one of those vile passions in which women leave men for other women and men leave women for other men. Verse 27 says, Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burn in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. This is an indication that God's wrath is revealed from heaven upon the earth. People are given up by God to their sins. That's his wrath. His wrath is revealed in that God has given men over to a debased mind so that they are filled with everything you read from verses 29 to 32. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, Wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Verse 28 tells us why. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being given over to these things is not the result of free will. It's not the result of mere personal choices. It is the result of God's having given people over to themselves. That is his wrath revealed. And for that purpose, the gospel is so greatly necessary. 
without sovereign grace, without the sovereign grace of God intervening, there is no hope of escape. So the gospel preached is a great and urgent necessity. Second, verse 32 shows us the wrath of God revealed in death. Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Death may appear to be a natural phenomenon in our world, but it's unnatural to us, to mankind, is apparent. It has always been troublesome to our race. It grieves us. It hurts. It confuses. Death seems to spoil whatever was gained in living. Death is real. It is coming for all in some way or another. It is God's wrath revealed. And for that reason, the gospel is so greatly necessary. Men die. We sometimes worry about whether one group of people or one religion will take over the world and kill everybody else. But consider the fact that even those people will one day die. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. That's the only good news there is. Because of death. Christ, the righteousness of God, bore the sins of many. His word says, if I believe, I shall be saved and death will have no dominion over me. The gospel must be preached so that men may hear of this great salvation. Believe in the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Be saved from their own destruction and enjoy and worship God together with people from all over the world. 